So friends, listen, um, I do, I, I want to reiterate how much I, I want to say thank you for subscribing to our YouTube channel. <laughs> it was one of the biggest wins of my week when I looked on our YouTube page and it was like, would you like to create a custom URL? Yes, I would! Nobody else cares about that. I get it. I get it. But thank you for just, thank you for playing along and thank you for subscribing. Uh, that makes me really happy. And why do we care about things like that? Why do we care that our YouTube our, our Facebook, our Twitter, our Instagram, all of it has the same Freedom Church KW uh, name to it, social handle to it. Why do we care? Because we really want it to be easy for people to find us. Just, just straight up. We want people to hear the message of hope. And we are here in a series of hope right now. All this fall we are talking about hope. And we want people to hear the message of hope. We want people to understand that it comes through Jesus and that he is so available every single moment of our day. Whether you found out about Jesus 40, 60, 70 years ago or whether this is your first time hearing about him. And so that's why we do that. So thanks for playing along with our little game. And uh, as usual, my favorite thing, we win. Okay? We always have to win. Okay. okay. Because we do win in Jesus. Uh, anyway, so thanks for that. Listen, this, uh, this is the last part of this Reconciling the Past uh, month. I know that uh, Pastor Ethan is going to be bringing the final word in this message, but this is my last one uh, in this particular month, Reconciling the Past in our season of hope. And I, I want to start by telling you some trivia. On, uh, I, here's a website you probably go to a lot, Track and Field 101 Rules on the uh, Olympic site. You guys have all been there, yeah? It says this. If a sprinter commences his or her starting motion from the set position before the starter's gun is fired, it is deemed a false start. The first false start of the race results in an automatic disqualification to the offending runner. Did you know that? There, it used to be that you get, like, got two, like, like one, you got two or whatever it was. The rules are now, they changed about 10 years ago, I think I was reading. The first false start of the race results in an automatic disqualification. Yeah, you heard that right. So think about this. You've trained for years. Your country and your corporate sponsors, everybody has gotten you to the start line of the most prestigious athletic competition in the world. And you have given up everything to focus on your sport. And then, boom, you're disqualified. Oh, you're saying easy, easy, easy. You don't have to just, you don't have to take your shirt off. Like, just be, be, be cool. This was from the uh, Usain Bolt. You might have heard of him. He's won a few Olympic medals for his speed. This was the 2011 World Championship where literally he's on the start line. Everyone expects him to win, and he probably would have. He false starts, and he's out of the race. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Now, you know, if you know you say he went on to do good things. He went on to do many, got many, many medals. But that's how close it is. That's how quickly you can be disqualified in an Olympic race. Or how about a team event like the relay? The relay is a tricky race too. You cross the finish line. This happens actually more than it, more, it's, it's really sad if you've ever seen it. You cross the finish line in a medal position and you're ecstatic and you're celebrating together and then someone points you to the replay and they show that your, your, your foot, one of your teammates' foot, feet has gone just over the line of their lane and your whole team is disqualified. This happened to the Canadian team in uh, London 2012. Look at them, they're like, yes! And then they're like, <laughs> in a second, it's taken away. Do you guys remember that? 
Maybe you're not Olympic weirdos like I am. I, I, was, I remember watching that, and like, it's just heartbreaking. Or maybe even worse than, than those disqualifications as someone who felt so much pressure to perform uh, that they, they took a steroid or performance-enhancing drug of some kind and probably justified it. Like, everybody's doing it, and, and if you don't do it, you'll, you'll, you won't have a chance. And the chances are so small that you'll ever be caught and then disqualified. I was eight years old when Ben Johnson was disqualified. Remember that, the Olympics in 88? Uh, when Ben Johnson was disqualified. How heartbreaking was that for Canada? Uh, and he had more than just this Olympic medal stripped. He had like a world championship medal stripped as well. So whatever was going through his mind, however he justified what he had done in a moment, in, in one drug test, all of it, all of it was taken away. The people who are counting on you, the organizations who had spent so much money on you, the country who's watching you with so much pride, and there you are, having stepped one foot over the line, having just, a, a, just too quick of a reaction, or have made a choice that you thought you were going to get away with, and you've disappointed everyone. And equally important, you're so, I can imagine, so disappointed in yourself. You're ashamed of your choices. And probably in any of those scenarios, you would give anything for a do-over. And I don't, I don't know any of you. I don't know all of your stories, but I know enough of you to know probably none of you have been caught doping at the Olympics. I think I would know that story about you if that was true. But I can almost guarantee that you probably know what that feeling is like. When something has happened in your life and you have made a mistake, you've crossed a line, and you know that you have disqualified yourself in some way or disappointed the people around you in a really, really significant way. And we've all had times when we've just utterly failed, when we, when we, we don't even know what's worse, how we feel, how we've made others feel, or just knowing that we've disappointed God, whatever it is. So when you've disqualified yourself and when you've made big mistakes or sometimes you just keep making the small habitual mistake over and over and over again and you don't feel worthy anymore, how do you come back from that? That's the story I want to take you to. And I want to say to you, thankfully, we're in a season of hope. So we've got many, many, many narratives in scripture to help us. We've been talking about a few of them this month. So even if your label this morning is you don't know who I've disappointed, I want you to know that you can have hope because, spoiler alert, you're reconciled in Jesus. I know I told you the ending already, but that's okay. I'm sure that's not a giant surprise to you. We can always have hope because we can reconcile the past through Christ. Because, like, listen, even sadder than uh, Usain Bolt being disqualified in the 2011 World Championship 100-meter race, to me is the story of Samson. It's just, if you know this story, it's a lot. It's just, like I said earlier, it's cringy. It makes you want to reach into the pages of Scripture and just slap some sense into him, or as Malachi would say, just slap him straight, right? Uh, but it also teaches us, the story of Samson teaches us a lot about the character of God when he looks straight into our failures and how he responds to us. Samson was a, a judge of Israel, hence why his story is in the book of Judges. Uh, and a judge of Israel was someone who was raised up by God to free them from, the, uh, from oppression of the people who were oppressing them at the time. It was different people. And, um, and before they had kings, before they had leaders like that. Um, and so um, Samson's story is actually told in over quite a few chapters in the book of Judges. Uh, Judges 13 all the way through to 16. 
And, and basically what you need to know about him to start today, if you don't know this story, is that he was set apart from birth and uh, he was given supernatural strength. So he was very, very ridiculously, inhumanly strong. Um, and that was how he helped to save the people from, in this case, the Philistines and, um, and, and free them from the oppression, free his people from oppression. So let's, let's jump there. I know your finger's already there, ready to go. My bookmark is there this morning. Let's just settle into this story because I, I, I know some of you probably haven't heard it and it's really important that you know this biblical narrative. So let's, uh, let's jump into uh, verse 1 here of Judges 16. One day Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. He went in and spent the night with her. The people of Gaza were told, Samson is here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They made no move during the night saying, at dawn we'll kill him. But Samson lay there only until the middle of the night. Then he got up and took hold of the doors of the city gate. Remember that thing I told you about strength? Uh, at, together with the two posts, tore them loose, bar and all, lifted them to the top of his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her. I just love, she's brassy. I mean, you got to give her that. She's brassy. Uh, so, Delilah, uh, so Samson answered her, if anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied them, him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, you have made a fool of me. You've lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. And he said, if anyone tries to tie me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. And then the men, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me. I mean, I don't know. I, we, could do a, we could do a voice here, but you know. <laughs> And lying to me, tell me how you can be tied. He replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. Uh, first of all, that's some serious, like, locks, like seven locks on his head. I just want you to get a picture of that. So guess what happened? So while he was sleeping, Delilah took seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with a pin. Again, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke up from his sleep and pulled the pin and the loom with the fabric. And she said to him, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? <laughs> She's the actual worst, I'm just saying. This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. And that's his response. <laughs> Just go away, Samson. Find somebody else. I can't. I can't. It's not how the story goes. So, she, so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. 
When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. And after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair. And she began to subdue him and his strength left him. Then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they sent, set him grinding grain in the prison. I mean, I, I learned this story. I heard this story a lot growing up, um, going to Sunday school. But I got to tell you, every time I hear it, I just, there's so much. Isn't there just so much you want to say to a lot of people in this story? First of all, why was he in Gaza at all? Like, what was he doing? What was his purpose? Um, he, like, one commentator said it literally was his wayward, sensual nature that led him wandering there to find a prostitute. Like, why? What, what are you, Samson, are you bored? Like, what are you doing? Get some, get, find something to do. And in fact, Scripture records that he was uh, with three women. He had three women in his life. And every one of them were Philistines. They were all women from the people that he was supposed to be freeing Israel from. And the, he, was, he was literally with the enemy and was choosing it every time. Okay? That's just one issue with the story. The, like, the, and there's a lot more to say about Samson. But also, why was Delilah such a piece of work? Like, how? How? How beautiful was she? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, and how, or how dumb was Samson? Like, I don't understand. Like, there's just so much... There's so much that's happening here. Um, and how, how can she make Samson so very, very dumb? There's just a lot. But this story is not about Delilah. But to me, the, the real heartbreak, did you catch it? I went really slow. The real heartbreak in this story is in verse 20, the back end of verse 20. Take a look again. What did it say? But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Isn't that sad? He'd just been going on about his life, doing his thing, making his choices. And then there came that point where he just assumed, yeah, I've done whatever I wanted to this point, and, and now um, I'm just going to keep, whatever. She's driving me crazy. I'm just going to tell her. It's probably fine. And he didn't even know that the Lord had left him. Samson had an incredible calling on his life. And he had the strength to back it up. He had incredible victories. You can read through his whole story. Uh, like I said, these, like this is uh, the last of the, of the chapters in Judges. But you can go back a few chapters and read his whole story. No one could touch him. Like literally, no one could touch him. His whole life, his whole life from birth, he had known the special empowering of the Holy Spirit. And he, he seemed to have taken the whole thing for granted. And so in that 20 years that he was the judge of Israel, he kept flirting with the line. He, like, he certainly did keep the Israelites free from Philistine oppression, but he was more and more and more reckless with women, with his vow not to touch a dead body or to drink wine. That was part of his Nazarite vow that's mentioned in here. He was uh, more and more reckless in his anger and using his strength to get him out of bad situations, to get vengeance for himself, for the, the things that he'd gotten himself into. And it was a slow fade. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It was a slow fade for 20 years for Samson until this ultimate betrayal by Delilah that brought him down. 
And if that wasn't sad enough that he destroyed his own life by making these choices, understand again what his calling was. He also crushed the hopes of the nation to be free from the Philistines. Talk about disqualifying yourself. Isn't that sad? So how do you come back from that? Like how do you reconcile the past when you've disappointed yourself and your family and your friends and your boss and your church and your community? What happens if you've done something to disqualify yourself from God's blessing or from his best or from his perfect will for your life? What do you do? Like what do you do? Let's pick up the story in uh, verse 22. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. You can actually sort of see this like a movie scene, right? How they're setting us up for the ending. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. So while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. I don't know exactly what that means, but it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't to honor Samson, of course, in any way. And when they stood him among the, the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Bracing himself against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtoel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. So I want to... In case you're wondering, I want to be very, very clear. My suggestion for you is not that you end it all and take a bunch of your enemies with you to make up for your past mistakes. <laughs> That's not the direct correlation we're going to grab this morning from Scripture. Because on the surface, it does look like that's what Samson is doing here. But I want to tell you that there is something much more profound going on here. There is a very big difference between the Samson who took a donkey's jawbone and killed a thousand men. That's a real story. Just flip back to chapter 15. And the Samson who's standing here now between two pillars, blind, and pushing them over. There's a very big difference between those two versions of Samson, and the big difference is a change in his heart. And I'm sorry if that sounds a little bit trite, but that's what we're reading here. That's the truth. It's as though um, he had uh, this physical blindness, and because of it, he was actually able to see how spiritually blind he was. And in his spiritual blindness, in his spiritual depravity, in that moment of losing everything, he actually was able to find the God who had called him and enabled him for all of these years. 
in that prison grinding grain, which by the way was a demeaning task, like it was intended to be demeaning to him. You think about what that would have been like, where before he was just wayward, like he just did whatever he wanted. He, he spoke to whoever he wanted. He went wherever he wanted. Now he's stuck in one place and he's physically unable to see and he's, he's uh, lost all of his strength. And in that place of grinding grain, he was also cut off from all of his vices. And everything that he saw and everything that distracted him and everything that made him feel powerful, the women and the violence and the way he got whatever he wanted. And there was nothing for him that, there was nothing left for, do, left for him to do in that place except for to make a choice, to get bitter and die angry or to reflect on how he got there in the first place. Bishop Hall, a, a 17th century English bishop said, his hair grew together with his repentance and his strength with his hair. So literally in the darkness that he was physically in, uh, and, and in, in, that, that in the darkness that his life had become, it was in that darkness that he decided to turn to God. And so throughout this story, it's interesting, in all of these chapters, it's interesting to, to look how, how little Samson ever interacts with God. He has all of these things, and the Spirit comes upon him. He's able to do incredible things, but there doesn't seem to be a prayer request or much else from Samson. On one occasion, after he had killed a thousand men with a donkey's jawbone, uh, very famous story, then he, he, he took credit for it in a little poem he wrote about himself. It's very sweet in, in uh, this chapter before this one, 15. And then right after that, he seems like he thinks he's dying of thirst. So whether he was, like, I guess, you know, it was a pretty desperate situation. He calls out to God for water. And then in that moment, he seems to be like, oh, yeah, the victory did sort of come from God. But, but basically speaking, you don't see uh, Samson interacting with God hardly at all in, throughout his life. But in these last days, in these last days as he's blind and grinding grain, Samson says something very important. In verse 26, he prays to God. You see this. And he does something. Remember last week we talked about how God had introduced himself to Moses and given the name. Do you remember what it was? I am who I am. When Moses says, who are you? Like, how am I, who am I supposed to tell people that sent me? And they had known the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, I am that God, and I am who I am. So we might uh, translate that now as, you might hear it as Jehovah or Yahweh. So this personal name for God, and, and here, at the end of this chapter, Yahweh, I am who I am, Samson actually prays to Yahweh for the first time. Because he wasn't praying to a God or like a, an impersonal God. It's, it's not inappropriate to call God uh, Elohim in the Hebrew, which is just a more generic name for God. He's not just um, thinking about God as the mysterious God of his parents. Because it was, you know, because his parents had prayed and his parents had raised him under this Nazarite vow. And so he was just sort of living in the thing that his parents had told him about. It wasn't this mysterious God that his parents had prayed to and who had brought about his miraculous birth. And this moment here, at the end of his life, he's finally looking to God for God himself. He's looking to God for himself and God himself. And he is literally, like I said, and we've read, he has done everything to disqualify himself for 20 years as the leader of Israel. He's done whatever he wanted. He's let the collateral damage be what it was. He took credit for his victories. 
until only until he was desperate enough to need a miracle. He chose lust over leadership time and time and time again. And yet, here's something amazing. Flip in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Again, it's in the YouVersion app for you. You can just scroll if you want. But if you're looking in your Bible, Hebrews 11, New Testament, close to the end. Hebrews 11 is known as the great, does anybody know? A little trivia for you. We call it the great, what? Hall of faith. The great hall of faith. The, the author of Hebrews gives up a bunch of stories about, about people who uh, were people of faith and, and names them and points to their lives and, sh and shows how much faith they have. So let's read uh, Hebrews 11. I want to read 32 to 34. So just kind of put your finger down that way and listen to what this says. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, or about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Samson made the list, you guys. Samson made the list whose weakness was turned to strength. How did Samson make the list? Were you guys reading the same story that I was? How did anything in his life become more than a, just a cautionary tale for us? How did he wind up in Hebrews chapter 11? And if you've been with us in this series, you're no doubt picking up on a theme Week by week by week, he did something very specific that you'll hear in other stories. He humbled himself, he repented, and he turned to God. So to recap this series so far, I've done three. Pastor Aaron's done one. Uh, Pastor Ethan has one more for you next week. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. That was David. It doesn't matter where you've come from. That's Josiah. It doesn't matter what kind of weakness you have. That's Moses. And it doesn't matter who you've disappointed. That's Samson. The solution to your life is shockingly similar. Repent, surrender, be humble, be honest, ask forgiveness. And in exchange, you receive forgiveness. You get lifted up. You get restored. You get helped. You get healed. You get redeemed. And you get freed. I like that transaction. The problem is that these things are not easy to do. But these things are very available for you right this minute. So maybe you think it's too late for you. Maybe you think you're too far gone. Oh, I wish. Oh, please tell me that. We'll have that conversation. Maybe you are sure. You're like, yeah, sure. I believe in Jesus. Jesus is cool. I'm actually really glad for what Jesus did on the cross and, and all those things. But the consequences of my decisions are simply too complex for full redemption anymore. I'm just going for bare minimums here. I'm just hoping to still get into heaven. And I would say to you today, the biblical narrative begs to differ with you. How on earth did Samson make it into the hall of faith? The same way that you can. The same way that I can. Because we are serving the same God that Samson was serving. If you put your faith in Jesus to forgive your sins and make you new and take the ashes of your life and bring something beautiful from them, your testimony can be the same as Samson's or David's or Moses or Josiah or me or you or the person sitting beside you or whoever. It's the same God. It's the same God that redeems and restores and always finds a way. And that was the point of the cross. 
in case you haven't quite understood yet, or in case you just need your soul to be reminded, we aren't able to make up for the mess of our sins, the sins that we've committed. Jesus came as the perfect sacrifice and paid for that sin. That's, that's the story. And now he's offering to broker a deal with you every single day. Why? Because he loves you, not because we deserve it in any way. And he says, I'll take all your weakness and I'm going to give you strength. And we just have to give him our lives in faith and follow. That's literally what we have to do. Hebrews 11.1, the beginning of that same hall of faith chapter says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is the transaction I'm talking about. You may not see how your disqualified life could ever become redeemed in some way. But the, the, the walk of faith says you can have confidence that because he said it, you can actually see it in your future. You can say, I don't know how you're going to do this, God, but I hear what you're saying. I see what Jesus did for me on the cross, and so I'm choosing to, have, to hope for the thing that I can't see. I want to have confidence and assurance in the thing that I am hoping for, which is that you can take this mess of my life and do something beautiful with it. Friends, listen, we are people of hope. Not because we are overly optimistic, or we're wearing rose-colored glasses, or we're deluding ourselves. It's because we have confidence in what we hope for. Because our hope is not in our ability to make it right, or to do it right, or to fix it somehow ourselves, or to make up for it. Our hope is in Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2 says that. And this is the first step if you want to reconcile the past. Listen, Rob, you want to come and help? Actually, Matt, you can come too. I liked everything that you were doing this morning. You're welcome. You're welcome back. Otherwise, if I hadn't liked it, you wouldn't. No. So the question for us becomes, what, what do you need to do in your life? We've been talking all month, and I know it's the, same, it's the same basic story over and over and over again, but it's such an important one. It's literally the basis of our faith. To say, what is it in your life that you need to surrender, that you need to let go of, that you need to be humble about, that you need to ask for help, that you need to be repentant of? What are the things in your life that need to be exchanged for all of these other things, the freedom, the redemption, the forgiveness? Um, what are the things that need to be exchanged in your life? Can you, can you be humble enough to ask for that kind of help from the Lord? What is it that you need to make right? What is it that you need, uh, to, in what place in your life do you need to walk in forgiveness? Uh, I'll tell you, that sometimes when you read stories like Samson's or David's or Josiah's or Moses, we think about these grand narratives and you're like, well, at least I'm not David. At least I'm not Samson. But I'll tell you, friends, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. So the thing in your life that might need to be forgiven and redeemed might have happened this morning 
Maybe it is a habitual sin, something you've been struggling with for years, something you can't quite get free of, you really need to let go of. Maybe there's just some way in your life that you have just utterly failed and you can't seem to find a way to, like maybe you've prayed for forgiveness, but you can't quite seem to find a way to really believe, to have hope for the thing that you can't see, that God could do any, sure he's forgiven you, but there's really no redemption in it. There's really no future in it. There's really no hope in it. It's Your only hope is that it's gonna be, it's enough, that maybe Jesus could cover it enough that it's okay. But you, you can't really move on or you can't really see the hope in your future. I don't know what it is for you. It could be decades old. It could be from yesterday. It could be from 10 minutes ago. All of us need Jesus. And the question is, are we gonna walk in the great divine exchange that he's invited us to? Are we gonna continue to live with the things that are in our lives right now? It absolutely is your choice. But I wanna tell you friends, there is so much hope in giving that stuff to Jesus and asking him to help you to make it right. And it is available for every person, every single day, every single moment. I don't care if it's as big as Samson's story, or the words that you exchanged with your spouse on the way to church this morning. That's never happened to us, but I've heard from other people, sometimes, sometimes those things need to be made right. That's why we drive separately to church, right? Yeah, okay. I, was like, I don't know what you're doing there, but I like it already. Um, I wanna invite you to a moment of repentance. I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is pointing out in your life, but I trust him to do it. And to say, this thing, I need you to, like God is saying to you, and if your heart's beating a little faster or there's a, a picture in your mind of something that's happened or you're remembering something or maybe there's something you have asked for forgiveness for but you're still holding on to, I want you to take this moment right here and lay it down. Could you just, could you lay it down once again? Could you believe and have hope for a better future? The fact that he really has redeemed, that he really is the God who sees, he is the God who strengthens, he is the God who, who like Samson, who your life can have a regained strength to it. Let's stand together. Rob's gonna help us in, um, in leading us in a, a chorus that has this prayer in it. But please do not sing along until you've had a moment to actually use your own words to pray. Lord, I need you. God, I, 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 I'm gonna speak out the thing that you are pointing out in my life and I'm gonna ask for forgiveness. I'm gonna humble myself and ask that you would do something in my life like that I can't do for myself. Whatever it is, whatever it is, we need to be people of repentance. We need to be people who understand who we are in front of God so that we don't stay in this place, but that we really can be lifted up as we are brought down humbly. Come on, let's just pray it in your own words and then join Rob when you're ready. Let me say to you, friends, that listen, I am so excited about repentance because it hurts to admit the things that you have done in your life today, yesterday, 10 years ago, 100 years ago. Maybe what is in your life also is unforgiveness and that's why you're struggling with forgiveness for yourself. 
Whatever it is in your life, you know, Scripture talks so much about that as well, but whatever you're struggling with, I love repentance. I love forgiveness. You know why? Because a church that understands their place under the cross and is lifted up by that, it's not about us, it's not about how great we are, it's not about all the things that we can do. We understand our position and we live with joy and hope because of it can change this community for Christ. Those who think that they're good enough and they're going to tell people how they can be good enough are probably not going to make a lot of inroads in the kingdom of church. If we walk in a place of humility, if we walk in a place of surrender and repentance, God will use us to change the world for Christ, your world for Christ. When people see a broken heart that has been mended, when people see a life that understands their place but also is full of joy and full of hope and full of freedom, people will see Christ in you. You have a testimony that you can share because your life is being changed day by day by day. And I don't know about you, but that gives me a lot of hope for this community. Amen. So we walk in it, not just for ourselves, though that is such a beautiful promise. We walk in this kind of unity in the spirit so that the world will understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so let's ask him for it. And Lord, we pray together as your church that you would give us what we need every day to be able to walk this out. We pray against the schemes of the enemy who would tell us even on the way to the parking lot this morning that everything that um, we talked about and prayed about is great for somebody else but will never work for you. We just say no to that lie. And we receive the truth from the scripture that you are a God who redeems and frees and forgives. That you are a God who takes broken things and ashes and you make beautiful things. And we don't always know how that's going to work out in our lives, but we claim that truth and we, we have hope. We have faith for what we can't see. We have hope and assurance in what, we, in what we know is coming in the future because of what you have told us in your word. God, teach us every day. And let the message of forgiveness, redemption, and, for, uh, and, and freedom in Christ affect every person that you have placed in our path. Let us be the kind of people who, who people can, can literally see Jesus in us, not because of how great we are or because we're perfect, but because we are those who walk with hope and joy and freedom because of the forgiveness and life we have received in Christ. Bring us to that place every day, Jesus. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to do that work in us and through us. And we pray these things together in the powerful name of Jesus. And the church says, amen. We bless you guys. We will see you again next Sunday. Walk in freedom. Walk in repentance. And let's do it together. Amen.